Motiversity family, it's Marcus Taylor. And I want to thank you for tuning in to the Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity, one of the top 50 podcasts in the world. If you enjoy listening to Motiversity and this podcast, you need to download the Mindset Daily Motivation app. On it, you'll gain access to thousands of motivational speeches, including Motiversity's and mine. And now, with the new Mindset Alarm feature, you can start each day with purpose, waking up to powerful audios like this one. You may be average, you may be ordinary, but you have the opportunity every single day to make extraordinary decisions. And what you do today will determine your future. To download Mindset, just go to MindsetApp.com or search for Mindset Daily Motivation on the Apple or Google Play Store and listen to motivational speeches while getting ready for the day. Click the link to download Mindset now and get ready to transform your life. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. What advice would I give myself? Um, well, here's the thing. It's an interesting question because I think 20-year-old me would not have listened to any advice because 20-year-old me thought he had it all figured out. But if I could somehow penetrate that thick skull, I would say to him, don't think you have to have it all planned out. So mellow out a little bit. Don't worry at all about what other people think. They're not thinking about you. And the most important thing that you can do is just try to make a contribution. Many people look for meaning in life as though it's going to be under a rock or behind a tree well there's my meaning you have more power than that you have the power to create meaning in your life rather than passively look for it meaning to me is do i know more about the world today than i did yesterday that enhances meaning for me so let me tell you something, visualizing your goal and going after it makes it fun. You've got to have a purpose no matter what you do in life. You've got to have a purpose. 
It's not graduating from Harvard that matters. It is the ambition and drive. If you were a 17-year-old and you decided I'm going to apply to Columbia, Harvard, Yale, whether you get it or not, you have ambition and drive, and that's what takes you forward. A lot of things in life that are difficult, and you have to ask yourself the question right off the top. You know, are you going to be one of those guys that are going to go and back off every time something is difficult, or do you want to be one of those guys that says, "Look, it doesn't matter if it's easy, or difficult, or most difficult. I'm going to go and crash through it." That's me. That's the person that I want to be, and I'm going to prove it to myself, and I'm going to prove it to the rest of the world. So when someone says, "No, this is a stupid idea." You in your mind, you don't have to say it, but in your mind, just say this: "Of you, you're not." What do you know? When that alarm clock goes off at four or five in the morning, your mind says no. You just say, "This is what we do. It's what we do now." Because to get to where you want to go, the amount of pain involved—I'm not saying physical. I'm not saying you got to break yourself off. The amount of mental pain of how many times you're gonna have to do something that you don't want to do to get to where you want to go. When I was 297 pounds and I was fat as hell trying to be a Navy SEAL, the scariest thing in the world to me, even to this day, was that that could have been the rest of my life. I thought then I was trying hard. That's the scariest thing in the world. I thought then. 297 pound, working for Ecolab, spraying for cockroaches, making a thousand dollars a month. I thought that was me at my 100% potential. Come to find out, a few years later, I wasn't anywhere near that. 106 pounds less, graduated Navy SEAL training, went on to do all these other things. Looking back on that, that was me trying hard. That's why people got to understand what is in us. We have no idea until we start trying hard, and I mean really trying hard. When you're obsessed with, hey, this is my new norm. My new norm is that wow, this isn't always fun. It's not always meant to be fun, and that's when you know you're trying hard. Is that and so people listening to us that maybe are at 20% or 30%, you know, about yeah, I'm I'm going hard, I'm going max, and yet they're not seeing the results. Like, how do they actually shake themselves out of that? We're all in a battle with our own brains. That's all life. That's、it's, all life is. It's the most powerful thing in the world. Is your own brain. It can work for you or against you. And as, as opposed to focusing on all those bad things that happened, all the things you didn't have, the people that called you names, all the stuff in Brazil again, and you start thinking, wait a second, I just visualized this, and now I can take it to the next level, next level, because the visualization got you through the seal. It did, and I was able to visualize the end. So, so before, so when I was 297, and I was all fat and out of shape, and I couldn't run a quarter mile, and I was drinking milkshakes and eating boxes of donuts, I visualized, man, how would it feel? For a brief moment, I was so there was 22 guys that graduated. I watched this segment on TV about these guys going through Navy SEAL training, and I couldn't even. I, I wasn't a great swimmer. I was afraid of the water. All this crap, man. But at the very end, it says 22 guys. This commanding officer's up there, and he gives this great speech. 
I was like, man, I wonder. So I started visualizing me being the 23rd guy in these dress whites, sitting there with these guys, getting that Navy SEAL, you know, graduating this Navy SEAL training. I was like, God. So I put myself there. I was like, man, that's, that's an amazing feeling. I put myself there at 297, not even able to do anything that these great men were doing. I said, man, if I could feel that, that would change my life. I can just feel that one, it's, it, it lasts for one second. You get that certificate, you walk across the stage, and what's next? But I didn't know that then. My mind was that I thought I lived in that moment forever. So I said, wow, man, if I could just feel like this, if I could feel like this. And what was that feeling you wanted so bad? No, victory. I wanted to win. Not like beat somebody else. It wasn't about that. I, I, I just wanted to go the distance. Everything in my life, when something got hard, I quit. If it was reading, that's why you know, I wasn't great at reading, I wasn't great at writing, so I just quit. I couldn't catch on as fast as you. I had to work harder than you, so I quit. You know, I wasn't great at things, so I quit. You know, I'm, I'm not good at this. Like, man, if I could just go that distance, that extra mile, to just go, just to finish. I want to finish. I want to feel victory. And victory for me wasn't winning, it was just finishing. So I said, you know what? If I could feel like these guys feel, it would change my life. But what I realized, the best feeling I had was when I was by myself trying to lose this weight. I had, I had to lose it in literally less than three months. 106 pounds in less than three months. And literally, I started feeling victory just by putting myself in the battle. It wasn't about going to Navy SEAL training. It wasn't about being the 23rd guy in that chair. I started realizing, man, just by going to war with myself every day and putting these challenges and these goals and these obstacles, these insurmountable obstacles. So it wasn't about losing 106 pounds. Me losing five pounds was an accomplishment. Me losing 10 pounds and then 50 pounds. And then the more I did this, the more I gained confidence. And then the more I gained confidence, the more I realized these guys can't do what I'm doing right now. I had no coach, had no trainer, had no money. I didn't know how to lose weight. I had no knowledge of what I was doing. I was just working. I was just sacrificing. And then through that, all these different tools started coming up. But I would have never found these tools if I didn't put myself in a very uncomfortable place. We all look for toughness. We all want it, but we look for it in a comfortable environment. You will not find toughness in a comfortable environment. Those of you who are listening to this, whoever hear this, you will not find it. You know, maybe you're in California, see someone speeding down the road in a in a convertible Porsche and you think, oh man, what a lucky bastard. And the truth of the matter is that he's thinking about wrapping his expensive sports car around the next cement pillar that he comes close to. You know, you, you can't tell and people have hard lives and, and even people who are comparatively fortunate have hard lives. And the ideal that you're observing that makes you jealous and resentful is in large part an illusion that's created by your own mind. You have to be careful of what you're jealous of because you don't really know what it is. And, and then the other thing that's kind of useful is to 
Well, to understand, you're quite different from other people and you shouldn't be comparing yourself to them because they're not like you. They, they don't have your family. They don't have your temperament. They don't have your troubles. They don't have your abilities. The only person that has those is you. One of the rules, I think it's rule four, is compare yourself to who you were yesterday and not to who someone else is today. And see, that's a game you can win. The possibility that you can make yourself slightly better on a continual basis is, I think that's something that's accessible to everyone. I, I think that's equivalent to leading a virtuous life. And there is something to be said for virtue and truth. You know, and, and that is one thing, another thing that I've noticed about people who've been phenomenally successful is that they really do everything they can to live a truthful life. And you can get a bloody long ways by being honest. You gotta know that there are differences in intelligence. It's really important. If you go into a job and you're not smart enough for that job, you're gonna have one bloody miserable time. And you're gonna make life wretched for the people around you because you won't be able to handle the position. But what you really wanna do as far as I can tell, if you want to maximize your chances for both success and, and let's say, well-being, is you want to find a strata of occupation in which you would have an intelligence that would put you in the upper quartile. That's perfect. Then you're a big fish in a small pond. And you don't want to be the, you don't want to be the stupidest guy in the room. It's a bloody rough place to be. So, and you probably don't want to be the smartest guy in the room either, because what that probably means is you should be in a different room. If you want to be the best at what you're doing, bar none, then having an IQ of above 145 is a necessity. And maybe you're pushing 160 in some situations. And maybe that's make, make, making you one person in 10,000 or even one person in 100,000. And then also, to really be good at it, you probably have to be reasonably stress tolerant and also somewhat conscientious. Why is it that smart people are at the top of dominance hierarchies? And the answer to that in part is because they get there first, right? I mean, everything's a race, roughly speaking. And the faster you are, the more likely you are to be at the forefront of the pack. And intelligence in large part is speed. That's not all of it is. So if you're moving towards something difficult rapidly, the faster people are going to get there first. You're gonna to have to put some effort into your life and you need to be motivated to do that. And so what are the potential sources of motivation? Well, you could think about them in, in the big five manner. You know, if you're extroverted, you want friends. If you're agreeable, you want an intimate relationship. If you're disagreeable, you want to win competitions. If you're open, you want to engage in creative activity. If you're high in eroticism, you want security. Okay, so those are all sources of potential motivation that you could draw on, that you could tailor to your own, you know, your own personality. But then there are dimensions that you want to consider your life across. And so we ask people about, well, you know, if you could have your life the way you wanted it in three to five years, if you were taking care of yourself properly, you know, what would you want from your friendships? What would you want from your intimate relationship? How would you like to structure your family? What do you want for your career? Well, how are you going to use your time outside of your job? And how are you going to regulate your mental, physical, mental and physical health? And maybe also your drug and alcohol use, because that's, that's a good place to auger down. And that tangles in your your incentive reward system. You know, we talked about the dopaminergic incentive reward system, and that's the thing that keeps you moving forward. And the way it works is that it works better if it produces positive emotion when it can see you moving towards a valued goal. Okay, well, what's the implication of that? Better have a valued goal, because otherwise you can't get any positive motivation. Most creative people fail at producing their creative product and monetizing it. Right, so your default position, if you're a creative person, is you're gonna fail. 
And so, and that's because it's hard to come up with something new and it's, and it's hard to present it to the market at the right time and it's hard to market it. Like those things are really, really difficult. And so what successful entrepreneurs do is they just keep doing it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And eventually, if they're fortunate, one of their ideas happens to hit the right place at the right time. Even if your idea is good, that doesn't mean it will be successful. There's so many things that have to be taken into account. So this is partly why persistence and that's part of conscientiousness is so useful. It's like persistence is helpful because it enables you to run many, many experiments. And, and you need to know that the baseline is failure. You know, it's important because otherwise you'll blame that on yourself. You know, and some of that's useful because there's probably some things that you could improve about yourself. But it's very difficult to go from zero to one. And what is a, an adult scientist but a, a kid who's never lost the curiosity? I bet most of your people who've sat in this chair, it's not about what college they went to. It's about their own initiative, their own drive, their own ambitions, their own curiosity. That is not taught in school, sadly. School, they view you as this empty vessel that they pour information in, and you test it over here, you get a high grade, you're praised. You might even give the commencement speech. Is that who become the shakers and movers of the world? I don't think so. When you come down the steps on the last day of school, you are not singing the Alice Cooper song, School's Out Forever. You'll be, there'll be a sad song you'll be singing, saying, gee, I gotta go two or three months without learning anything? You should be sad that school is over, not happy. And so you leave school and you say to yourself, I now know how to learn. I now have a curiosity of all things I have yet to be exposed to. And I will now become a lifelong learner. I read things that take me to places where other people think. What was it about your dad that impacted you so much that you still carry today? For me, at least, was uh, what level of wisdom did he glean in his life and then successfully communicate to me, either by example or by just explicit statement. In high school, he was in gym class and they were lining up and they were about to enter the next athletic unit and it was track and field. And the gym instructor pointed to my father online and said, Cyril Tyson, everyone look at him, he does not have the body type that would excel in track. And he says, what? No one is going to tell me what I can't do in my life. And he used that as a reason to start running. Within a few years of that, he became world class. In 1948, the Olympics was not yet ready to come back to us because we're still reeling, roiling from the Second World War. Instead, it was still an Olympics. It was called the GI Olympics, and it was held in Hitler's stadium. Wow. So he competed in Hitler's stadium uh, in the late 1940s. But the reason I'm saying all of that is, there's a friend of his named Johnny Johnson. They were competing against the New York Athletic Club. The New York Athletic Club, at the time, accepted only white Protestants. So there was another club called the Pioneer Club, which took everybody who was not accepted to the New York Athletic Club, which was basically blacks and Jews. And his best friend, Johnny Johnson, okay? 
was coming around the back stretch, might have been the quarter mile, coming on the final straightaway. And a runner from the New York Athletic Club is a few paces behind him. And Johnny Johnson overhears that runner's coach say, catch that n***. And he overheard this. So what did he say to himself? He said, this is one n***. He ain't going to catch it. <laughs> and that extended his, his, his lead to the finish line. And he tells this story not with any bitter tone. It was, here's an occasion to parlay what today might be called a microaggression into a reason to excel even more than you had expected of your own abilities and talents. Okay, my last question, what's the impact you want to have on the world? My impact would be people learn from me in a way that they are empowered by what I taught them. So that when they think of what they learned from me, they no longer think of me. They think of their own base of understanding of how this world works. I become irrelevant. And because if people say, this is true because Tyson said so, then I failed. That's not how you teach someone. That's, that's teaching them by authority. I don't, you know, that's, no. I want to I, I teach you how to think about the world. And then you say, I have a new way to understand the world. And you just run off. Don't, you don't even look back because a new level of hunger has descended upon you and methods and tools to feed that hunger are now accessible to you. So my impact would be that others are impacted and they don't even remember that I had something to do with it. Can you give us a sense of your career? Like, how did you end up where you are now? Was it a straight line? <laughs> I don't know what the opposite of a straight line is. I, I, you know, like, like I know, is a straight line a circle? Is a straight line like a jumble? No, there are no straight lines. Uh, at a certain point, I think I felt like I needed a long-term plan. But then what I also found is that any long-term plan immediately hits the ugly truth of reality and then becomes a joke. And so for me, I think very carefully about What's next? What's next? E.L. Doctorow, the great novelist, had this lovely metaphor for writing, but I think it's true for, I think it's true at some levels for careers and for life, which is that you're driving on a dark night and you have your headlights on and you can only see, you know, a few meters ahead of you. And that's sometimes aggravating. But the thing is, you can make the whole journey that way. You can make the whole journey that way. And a lot of times you can't see the full journey. The, the technique that I use for younger people who, like your viewers who say, okay, you know, it's like, how did you get to be doing, you know, I wanna come up with my plan. I wanna come up with this carefully constructed way of moving from point A to point B to point C to arrive at a particular destination. And my, what I say to them is, okay guys, hold on. Hold on, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find somebody in their 40s or 50s who is doing something that is cool, that you like, that you admire, that makes a contribution. And then ask that person this question, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? And I guarantee you that 99 times out of 100, the most interesting, impactful people will answer that question like this. It's a long story because it is the opposite of a line, whatever that is.
There are, there are four core regrets over and over again, and they, they, they tend to transcend the domains of life. We often think of our regrets as like, oh, I have a career regret. Oh, no, but I have a health regret or I have a romance regret. But what I found is the four regrets are these foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. These are regrets people have about not studying hard enough in university or um, not taking care of their health or smoking or not eating right or not saving money. Small decisions that accumulate to bad consequences. The second one, huge category, boldness regrets. These are regrets that people have that say, if only I'd taken the chance. They didn't start a business. They didn't ask that crush out for a date. They didn't travel. Uh, they had an opportunity at, at one point in their life to do something beyond play it safe. They chose not to do that and now they regret it. Third category, are moral regrets, if only I'd done the right thing. These are people who, at a certain point in their life, could do the right thing or the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing, and it still bugs them, which is in some way, its own way heartening. It shows that I think people want to be good. And then the final one are connection regrets. Connection regrets are, if only I'd reached out. And these are regrets about relationships, um, where you have a relationship, or you should have had a relationship, and it comes apart, usually through drifts, and you want to reach out, but you don't because you think it's going to be awkward and the other side's not going to care, so it drifts out even more. And then in, in some cases, it, it ends up being too late. And so these four regrets, to me, reveal, as I said earlier, what makes life worth living. What do we want out of life? We want a stable foundation. We want some stability. We want a chance to do something. We want a chance to learn and grow and lead a psychologically rich life. We want to do the right thing. I'm convinced, Tyler, that most of us want to do the right thing. And what else do we want? We want love. We want connection to other people. That's what makes life worth living. And I think in terms of careers, I think that's what, what makes a good career. I think that what makes, that's what makes an organization that's worth working for. And this way that I think that we can process our regrets is very healthy. So one thing you can do is you can, ref you know, like I, I feel like there's three simple steps that you can take to turn your regrets into engines for progress. One of them is to reframe, is to reframe the regret and the way you think about yourself. Um, so, you know, do you, so a lot of times when we have a regret, one reason that we try to avoid it is that if we really confront it, we start lacerating ourselves saying, you, you know, our, our self-talk is you're an idiot. What are you talking about? And what we should do instead is, it sounds gooey, but what we should do instead is treat ourselves with kindness. There's a body of research in what's called self-compassion, which is treating ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. Thinking about our own missteps as part of the human condition, not something that only we do. Looking at our missteps not as fully definitional of who we are, but as just one part of who we are. And so just sort of being a little better to ourselves. The second thing you can do is disclosure. Disclosure is itself inherently valuable. And we know that it relieves a burden, but the other thing, when we talk about our regrets or even write about them, we take this blobby, amorphous, negative emotion and convert it into words, and that makes it less fearsome, and it begins the sense-making process. So there's a pile of evidence showing that talking about our regrets, even writing about them privately, is a way to defang them. And finally, what we need to do, which is essential, is we need to, you know, we can, we can look inward, all right, we can express outward, but then we gotta, we gotta move forward. And the way to do that, in my mind, is to take a step back and extract a lesson from it. What would you tell your best friend to do? 
if you were looking back on this decision 10 years from now, what would you want to have done? If someone else were in your position, what would she do? And, and I think this process of looking inward and treating ourselves with some kindness, expressing outward and disclosing the regret as a way to make sense of it, and then moving forward by taking a step back and extracting a lesson is relatively simple to do and allows us to take these regrets and not be scared of them and not let them debilitate us, but to enlist them as forces for moving forward. Yeah, I, I always wanted to be a commando ever since I was a little kid. And I heard that the SEALs were really tough and that the training was really tough. And then, you know, once you get in, everyone makes a big deal out of buds that's, but it's, it's in the SEAL teams, it's no big deal. Everyone goes through it. It's, you get cold, you get wet, whatever. You do a bunch of push-ups and pull-ups and dips. Anyone that gets to the SEAL teams and does deployments overseas and has a real career, they're not talking about BUDS training. <laughs> it, okay. just, it just doesn't mean it. I had a guy that was, you know, a, NCAA water polo team captain champion, and he quit. And I had a guy that was an Olympic alternate gymnast, and he quit. Just because someone's a good physical athlete, it doesn't mean that they're a good SEAL. Because being a good SEAL is a lot more than just being a good athlete. Being a good athlete is like the baseline. And it's everything that you learn to do after that a good leader, a guy that's tactically sound, a guy that makes good decisions, a guy that's good under pressure, a guy that doesn't ever give up on trying to accomplish a mission. Those are the things that make a good SEAL. So you're always learning and growing, and, and I was always learning until the day I retired. Because it's not a boom, this happened and everything changed. It's, it's a constant addition of skill set and repetition of situations where you become competent at your job. Almost immediately, we're going to uh, memorial services for Army guys, Marines that are killed, which, you know, was a, a, a rude awakening. So that's, that's the welcome to Ramadi. The welcome to Ramadi is, you know, you're gonna go and pay your respects to some guys that were just killed. And, and there's firefights in the city. So we're, we're just across the river from the city. There's firefights in the city all day. There's firefights in the city all night. We're on, on the rooftop of our building. You can sit there and watch Tracer fire go back and forth. We're shot at from, you know, across the river bank. There's, yeah, it, it, was, it was legit. It was legit combat. It was a legit bad scenario with sustained combat operations. How, how do you lead your men through that when you know they're dealing with not only the funerals, which definitely take a psychological toll, but then even that just constant firefighting over there. I mean, do you have to switch up your gear and think, okay, I gotta lead stronger or maybe a little easier in certain scenarios? Are you changing? Yes, you do have to modulate your, your leadership. And you have to do that if you're in the business world. You have to do that if you're leading any kind of team. You've gotta modulate and you gotta recognize when your guys need to be pushed and when your guys need to be not pushed and given a rest. So you're constantly doing that regardless of what kind of team you're leading. And in combat, like you know, I say all the time, it's amplified. Because if you push your guys too hard in combat, they're gonna break. 
You know, whereas in business, oh, maybe they make errors on something or maybe they do snap. I mean, it does happen in the business world where people like can't take it anymore. But in combat, it'll happen very quickly. And, and so, you know, you do, you're constantly modulating and, and taking measure of where your guys are at. And, you know, sometimes I didn't do a great job of that. Sometimes I went a little far and said, ooh, wow, I just saw the look on that guy's face. He, he's, he needs a rest. And I should have recognized that earlier. And, you know, you make mistakes, no doubt. And whether your mission is to go out and capture, kill bad guys, or your mission is to produce something or sell something or manufacture something or design something, trying to get that team to be unified behind a plan and executed efficiently, it doesn't matter what the mission is. You're still dealing with human beings. You're still dealing with people. Whether you're in the SEAL teams or whether you're in the Army or the Marine Corps, the people that are working for you are not robots. They're people. And you cannot give them orders and expect them to just execute like a robot would. If the military was like that, then military leadership would be the easiest thing in the world. You know, my guys wouldn't just do what I told them because I outranked them. And they, I kind of get that funny look. I will, let me ask you this. I'm here because your employees aren't doing what you want them to do, right? Can you just fire them? Don't they work for you? Aren't they supposed to follow you because you're in charge and you write their paycheck? But all of a sudden they're not doing what you tell them to do. Why is that? It's the same exact reason, because they're people. And guess what? People want to own their own destiny. They want to be in charge of what's happening. They want to take ownership. They want to create the plan. That's how they want to go through life. They don't want to go through life being treated like a robot. They want to be treated like a human. So don't talk to me about, oh, well, it was easy for you because you had these highly trained, highly disciplined, you know, uh, Terminator robots that work for you. Not true. In fact, the opposite. I had a bunch of hard-headed, you know, the guys that you talked about earlier, I had a bunch of hard-headed, very determined, thick-skulled guys that, you know, I had to get them to do what I wanted them to do. I had to get them to want to do what I wanted them to do. I had to make them think that it was what they wanted to do. My path to the success that I had, it didn't come easy. I was one of those kids that was a late bloomer. I wasn't a four or five star kid or an athlete coming out of high school. I wasn't heavily or highly recruited going into college. And so I relied a lot on things that my grandmother instilled in me and obviously faith was one of those. So um, obviously as, as kids grow up, um, you're gonna get bigger, faster and stronger. Some kids are really highly talented really gifted more so than others. Um, I just didn't happen to have those gifts early on, and that's why I say I was a late bloomer. And again, I just tried to, to build on what I had. I was always competitive. Uh, I played a number of sports. I was one of those kids that liked to play any and everything uh, because I was competitive in high school. I played four sports. I lettered in all of them. Aside from football, I played basketball. I ran track, and I played baseball. And so in the South, um, that's what we do. We eat, breathe, and drink, and sleep football and sports. And so I was one of those kids, like I said, I wasn't your four or five star athlete, but nobody would ever know that. Obviously, when you look at how my career ended and look at who I played with and played at the highest level in the National Football League. Consistency is key. I realize that not only in just athletics or sports, but it's very key in every aspect of your life. Communication, consistency uh, is key with anything. The best part uh, about it, and the most important part, is communication. 
So I started to realize that later on as my career progressed, you communicate, know how and understand how to communicate with your peers, coaches, and be receptive to a constructive criticism, then I think you give yourself an opportunity to grow, um, not only as a person, but as an athlete at the same time. There's always communication in everything that we do. Being able to listen instead of being so quick to, to respond or speak. You know, you'll see a lot of things a lot clearer. When you think about some of the things that I've accomplished, you know, the Super Bowl was one of those games. I said, you know, obviously to play in the Super Bowl, uh, that's a big accomplishment in itself. It wasn't the Super Bowl that I envisioned considering um, the injury that I had sustained probably six and a half, seven weeks prior to the Super Bowl. A lot of people, even, you know, doctors across the country um, basically said that there was no way I would have played in that Super Bowl considering the, the injury that I had sustained. And so I tore all pretty much all the ligaments in my right ankle. Uh, I ended up uh, finding out the next day after the game that I had broke my fibula and I ended up having to have uh, two screws and a plate inserted into my ankle just for stability, just to help with the healing process. And so literally after that, I think it was mid-December when I had, uh, when the injury occurred, honestly, like I said, you know, we had two, I think two more games uh, to go in the regular season. And then we had, obviously we made the playoffs and then we had to play two playoff games to get, ultimately get to the Super Bowl. And so, I went into surgery the next day. The training staff there with the Eagles, they gave me a lot of confidence and basically put me in an aggressive rehab program. They knew what type of person that I was uh, from a mental standpoint. Um, my mindset of obviously wanting to get to the Super Bowl, um, they brought me there in hopes of me helping the team to get there. And I think with what I brought from a mental standpoint, a swag standpoint, aside from really what I, my production and things that, how I carried myself in the football field, that enabled them to really play those games, especially going into the playoffs, you know, without me. I think I instilled my work ethic on some of it, and it rubbed off on some of the receivers. I think the swag and, and what I had brought throughout the season, that carried them into the playoffs. No different than anybody else, but I'm sure a lot of athletes that have, you know, obviously achieved an amount of success, I think when their doubt creeps in or there's naysayers or there's doubters, I think the, the best thing that I ever did, I ever did, obviously I think was believe in myself. Uh, that's first and foremost. I saw and I listened to what the coach said and they saw in me, which was a lot of potential. And I just wanted to build on that. And so with me, I think, you know, if I didn't have the, the, the coaches that pushed me, pushed me beyond my own limits or my own expectations, I don't think that I would have become the receiver that I became. I don't think I would have been this guy that became T.O. physically. I fit the description of an athlete. I fit the description of one of those physically uh, imposing receivers, uh, I guess became a poster child for prototypical receivers that came after me. Because if you look at the, 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 the transition of the receiver position before me and after me, they started to become bigger, faster, and stronger. Guys like Calvin Johnson, they called him Megatron. You think of uh, Julio Jones. You know, these are big body type of receivers that possess, you know, not only just, uh, 
you know, the hands and catch radius. But when you think about the speed and the power of these guys, that's something that people marveled at as they saw the progression each and every year um, that I played in the National Football League. And I think after my third year in the league, after I made the, the catch against the Green Bay Packers, I think that instilled uh, a lot of confidence in myself that I could play and I could play on a big stage. It didn't it didn't start out particularly well, but that's where the cliche statement, you know, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. The simple thing is this. See, if your joy, your sadness, your happiness, your misery is determined by something or somebody around you, the chances of you being joyful in your life is remote. For every one of you, your life is precious, isn't it? It's a precious life. If something is precious, where do you want to invest this life? Into what do you want to invest this precious life? If this is a worthless life, throw it somewhere. If this is a precious life, what do you want to invest this life into? If you look at it this way, you will find something truly worthwhile to do. If you think in terms of how to earn a living, how to get this kind of thing, that kind of thing, then you will do something silly that you will regret for the rest of your life. Most people are a regret. That's why they're going around joylessly because they're not doing what they want to do. They are not creating what really matters to them, they're doing something for a living. Earning a living is not a big deal for a human being. Every creature, every worm, insect, bird, animal is earning their living, isn't it so? With such a big brain, what is a big deal about earning a living? See, your ability to do things is not because you want to do things. I want to do something is my desire. Desire is just an intention. An intention won't make things happen. An intention will only set direction. Still you have to make the journey. We've become too goal-oriented. Goal-oriented means we are interested in the consequence, but we are not interested in the process. Process is an end in itself. If you are absolutely devoted to the process, something will come out. But now we are interested in the consequence, not in the process. This goal-orientedness, I want to get there, I want to get there. No, I want to win the race. See, if you treat life as a race, if you have to win it, you have to get to the finish line soon. You want to? If you get to the finish line ahead of all these people, you won the race. You know what the finish line is? We'll be negotiating where to bury you. What separates a dreamer from a doer? Three words, consistent, follow through. For some reason, everybody don't want to follow through. Everybody talk a good game, but I need you to follow through. You always know a successful person because they got amazing 
follow through. We got to rise up right now and we got to start and we got to finish. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how talented you are because Bruce Lee said it best. A warrior is an average person with laser-like focus. Don't even worry about your ability. Don't you worry about opportunity. I need you to be a warrior right now and let your work get your opportunity. Let your work get your praise. Let your work open up doors. Let your work get people paying attention. Let your work get the whole world to notice. You got to work. Stop thinking. Stop procrastinating. And you got to work. I need you to rise up to fulfill your dreams. Rise up and attack your goals. There's no time to sleep. No time to nap. No time to waste. If you fall asleep, wake up and rise up again. You should work so hard that you collapse in the bed at night. Sometimes in the afternoon, you're so weary from grinding that your body just collapses. That's okay. Have sweet sleep. But when you wake up, grind again. Now is the moment to capture the vision. Here's what success is all about. You need these three things. Are you ready? You need skill set, mindset, and opportunity. You need to rise up and understand what success is all about. Skill set. Work on your skill. Mindset. Work on your mentality, baby. And your opportunity will come. Commit to your dreams. Commit to your goals. I need you to rise up and commit to yourself. Commit to the process. I'm tired of you getting on Facebook and social media and Instagram and looking at everybody else. You sit there and look at their house, their cars. You sit there and look at their persons and their bags. And you look and say, man, I wish that was me. I wish that was me. Oh, man, I wish that was me. It can be you, but you got to rise up. You got to commit to the process. You got to get in the game. Stop being a spectator and start being a participant. Trust me, I need you to rise up right now. When your opportunity comes, you better be ready. When your opportunity hits, you better respond, baby. And all the work you put in, all the grind you put in, when your opportunity shows up, you're going to be ready. Hard work will pay off. Now we got to create the plan. What's your game plan? Okay, I got you excited. I got you fired up. I got you motivated. But what's your game plan? Step one, you need to know what you're going for. You got to be clear and decisive and have clarity for what you want. Because if you don't have clarity of what you want, you're going to get distracted. Don't you quit until you get exactly what you want. I'm thinking about the CEO of Walmart right now. The CEO of Walmart right now, Doug McMillan. You guys know he started unloading trucks at the distribution center in the summer? Didn't even have a full-time job. He started at Walmart part-time. He finished school, became an assistant manager and a buyer, and now he's a CEO. Hello! He rose up one day. He got started. He stayed committed. And he finished. I need you to think like a shark. Because a shark never stops moving. Or it dies. I need you to become the CEO of you. And the only way you can do it is you got to rise up. You got to stay committed. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be ups. I know it's going to be downs. But let me tell you something. You're going to get there, baby. I know you got a great new idea. Congrats. 
You found an incredible opportunity. Opportunity, you need it. I got it. And I know you're going to make it happen. I know you're going to change the world, but you got to have your mindset. You got to have your skill set, and you got to wait for your opportunity. And when your opportunity comes, you got to go forward. You might think to yourself, Walter, man, I've been touched about what's going on in the world and I want to change and make this world a better place. And how can I help others? Here's how you're going to help others. Rise up. I mean, Nelson Mandela was no different than you. An average man with a laser-like focus. Martin Luther King was no different than you. An average man with a laser-like focus. Oprah, you put in your favorite person. Bill Gates, come on. Come on, whoever you really look up to. I want you to understand that they were an average person, just like you. They had an idea. They started. They followed through. And then they finished. Now what you gonna do? What are you actually going to do? Are you gonna say, man, I love all these audios, man, I love all these videos, you get me pumped up, and you gonna do nothing? You just gonna sit there and do nothing? I need you to be that average man. I need you to be that average woman. But I need you to understand that you got to have rise up in you. And you got to have laser-like focus. There's greatness in you. Passionate about right now. I believe uh, self-doubt is one of the biggest killers to anyone's dreams. Yeah. So how does someone develop self-confidence? and sustain it with the ever-going changes and stresses and uncertainties that always come up. Yeah. Once you reach a certain level, there's a new uncertainty. Yeah. So I, I think it's ironic that we call it self-confidence. Because I don't, for one, think it comes from the inside. I think our self-confidence comes from the outside. Right? You mean that's the wrong way of going about it, or you think that's where it comes from in general? The, the, we are being misdirected by the name. When we say build your self-confidence, that's the instruction is saying go inside, look inside oneself. But I think that's I think that's I think that's a false direction. Children aren't born self-confident. Their confidence is built from their parents and their friends and their teachers, where they're rewarded when they do well and they're um, pushed when they fail when they can do better. Simply, you know, we know this, that simply telling kids that they're great all the time actually doesn't build self-confidence, it actually does the, t the total opposite, right? right? Um, and I, for one, I can tell you, my, in my own experience, my own self-confidence, 100% um, uh, comes from the relationships that I have. Um, it's not some deep internal fortitude, you know? A, a world-famous trapeze artist is not gonna f uh, uh, try a brand new death-defying act for the first time without a net. So it's the people in my life. Um, it's it's when, when I do doubt myself that somebody says, you got this. When somebody says, I believe in you. When somebody says, no matter what happens, whether it succeeds or fails, I'm gonna be by your side. That's when I have the confidence to do difficult things. Wow. Right? I don't have some natural battery that I, that, that just, <laughs> right. you know, that, that to me is bravado. Yeah. I don't know that self-confidence, you know, you know, being a huge risk taker is not an indication of self-confidence to me, you know, 
jumping out of a plane and jumping out of a plane with a parachute are two different things, right? Right. Um, um, to me, self-confidence is measured, and there should be a degree of of, of doubt. Um, but but I, I think true self-confidence, belief in oneself and belief in one's cause, you know, I could not do the things that I'm doing, and I would not have the strength um, to have made the sacrifices that I've made or continue to wake up on a daily basis to drive to spread this message um, if I were alone. Mm. And so when we talk about building one's self-confidence, I think the mistake that we make is that we look inside. I think the reality is when we're trying to build our self-confidence, we should be looking to our friends, we should be nursing our relationships. Mm. When I'm looking to build my self-confidence, the question is, who around me do I need to take care of? Mm. You know. The, the way we build our self-confidence is by helping somebody else build theirs. It's an act of, we will build our confidence with an act of service. But that's not, that's true not only in a broad sense that we're part of these tribes, like big tribes, you know, what it means to be a Christian or to be American or to be Australian or whatever, but it's also true in the small tribes that we belong to, what it means to be a neighbor on this street or a member of your local CrossFit gym to volunteer for a local organization. All of those tribes, all of those groups that you belong to have a set of shared expectations, a set of shared norms. And the key, if you want to build habits that last, if you want to change the way that you interpret cues, is to join a group where your the desire behavior is the normal behavior, right? Like there are, mm. there are plenty of people who they want to work out, but going to the gym feels like a lot to them. Uh, it feels hard, feels like a sacrifice. But there are also people who go to the gym every week and it's just normal. It doesn't feel like an obligation. That's the desired behavior is the normal behavior. It's their lifestyle. Right. Same thing for uh, musicians. You know, like if you want to learn an instrument, hang out with people who play all the time. You know, like if you hang out with a bunch of musicians, it's like, well, yeah. That's what we, we do all Yeah, day. we play four days a week. We play seven days a week yeah. because it just happens. That's, that's what the tribe does. The caveat to this and the thing that I don't see people mention a lot is that the reason social norms influence our behavior so much is because we want to belong to the tribe. We want to be friends with those people. And so we don't want to lose the friendship or lose belonging over violating the norms. If there was a genie and a genie could grant you any one wish, but only one wish, what would you wish for? If there was only one wish, what would you wish for? It, you know, most people would say money or this or that, but you think learning is the... Is I, the I mean, I think a lot of people... I think being learn. the matrix, like downloading the matrix yeah. to where I could learn jujitsu in a second. Exactly. If I can learn a language in yeah. a second, if I like, can have this skill. So I think the, the hack a lot of people would do is if it was any one wish, they would wish for more wishes, right? right. Exactly. They would ask for infinite wishes. So the equivalent, if I was your learning genie and I could grant you any one wish to learn any subject or any skill, just like become a master at it, the equivalent, what's the equivalent of the answer of asking for infinite wishes? It would be learning how to learn. Because if you can learn how to learn, the world is yours. Especially today, because nobody who's listening and watching gets paid for their brute strength, it's their brain strength. It's not your muscle power, it's completely your mind power. And the challenge is your brain doesn't come with an owner's manual, it's not user-friendly, and that's the reason why I wrote this book. But the Limitless Model is an explanatory schema, a framework for learning anything faster. And not only that, but really for accessing our human potential. Because I think if there's one infinite, limitless resource on planet Earth, 
it's human capability. Mm. There's no limit on our determination. There's no, no limit to our imagination. There's no known limit to our creativity. And yet we're not shown how to be able to access that. And so this framework is a three-part framework. And what I would offer everyone to do is, I love to turn this into a, like a little masterclass, okay. make it really engaging. And so don't listen passively because we don't learn through, the human brain doesn't learn through consumption. It learns through creation and creativity and getting involved in things. And I know a lot of us learn faster when we actually roll up our sleeves and do it. So I would encourage everybody as they're working out or cleaning the house or whatever they're doing at the same time to try to get involved in this. High performers seek clarity. And what that means for them is every situation they go into, they're seeking clarity and setting intention. And it's not like once in a while, they're doing it way more often. It's like, uh, uh, you know, I've been blessed to work with Oprah Winfrey. When she has a meeting, at the start of every meeting, she asks, what's our intention here? What's the intention of this meeting? Not, what's the agenda? What do I do? What's the intention? That's every meeting. So she's seeking clarity at the beginning of every meeting. That's why she's so amazing, right? If you think about her whole career, she was always trying to have people seek clarity on who they were so they could be themselves. That's what high performers are doing. If you watch old clips of like Kobe Bryant, he'll talk about like, I'm just a fan of all these people and I'm just stealing their moves and I'm just trying to do, I'm trying to do the game better. And Kobe's one of those, he was one of those guys that grew up with VHS tapes, which makes it completely, you know, the way I've had it explained to me is it's like when you can watch replays of other players, famous players and watch their moves, you can do study, you can study on the couch yeah. <laughs> as a player, you know, you don't have to be like up against them to, and, and that, that idea that you're a fan first, that you ingest all this stuff first and you take it in and it mixes around and then through your practice, all that stuff comes gushing out eventually and it comes out in a new, it's like a gumbo in your head. You know, you're just adding stuff and eventually you ladle it out in something new. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.